1: The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, April 24th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Supposing you brought the light inside the body. Supposing we hit the body. Donald Trump supposes his verbal flourishes are roses, but Donald Trump supposes erroneously. Let's review. A question that probably some of you are thinking of if you're... None of us were thinking it. Totally into that
2: world, which I find to be very interesting.
1: The world of reckless musings on self-poisoning? Or the world of advancing medical excrement?
2: So, supposing we hit the body.
1: Oh, the world of abuse. Actually, I do believe you find that world fascinating.
2: With a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. And I think you said... That hasn't been checked, but you're gonna test
1: it. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body. Supposing we did. And further supposing we rotate the body, like, say, on a range or one of those roller things, like inside a 7-Eleven where they roast the corn dogs. Supposing we did that, stick with me now, supposing we dip the body in a shellac or some sort of unguent, and then we stick those little lights that self-adhere that you stick on the inside of a closet, and further suppose we utilize a tremendous technology developed by the military. It's called the Clapper. No, not James Clapper. He's a traitor. The Clapper. In which
2: you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way.
1: I think he means the butt.
2: And I think you said you're going to test that too. Sounds interesting. We'll get
1: the right folks who could.
2: Right, and then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning? Because you see, it gets in the lungs and it. Does a tremendous number of them, so it'd be interesting.
1: The president there doing a tremendous number on our brains. Today, we were waiting for an explanation, perhaps the director's track. He said this. But I was
2: asking a sarcastic and a very sarcastic question to the reporters in the room about disinfectant on the inside, but it does kill it and it would kill it on the hands and that would make things much better that was done in the form of a
1: sarcastic question to the reporters sarcasm mere japery you do not know how to read one of the most sophisticated driest wits on the circuit today forged in the finest salons and the algonquin round Table type world of fred trump screaming there are the weak and there are the winners donald trump honed his skills as a parodist and sought to inject it into the conversation as one injects Clorox directly into the veins. Continuing in the tradition of the Roman poet Juvenal and Samuel Johnson, Dorothy Parker, and Oscar Wilde, Mr. Trump has unleashed such bones mo as lock her up and Dorothy Parker, more like Dorothy porked her, am I right? Don't ask for the high five, Eric, just nod. Deborah Burks, noted appreciator of Clever Sallies slash exemplar of the hostage video form, described the presidential quippery this way on Fox News. You
0: know, when he gets new information, he likes to talk that through out loud um, and really have that dialogue. And so that's what dialogue he was happen-
1: having. I think- Much like we hope dozens of Trump supporters will not digest Lysol this evening. By the way, that was not technically a dialogue. It was a monologue, like that part in Macbeth about the tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing, to which Macbeth adds in the little remembered next line, uh, full of sound and fury signifying nothing, kidding, kidding, sarcasm. Can anyone in this empty castle parapet take a joke? Totes kidding. On the show today, escaping to our country homes, a personal calculation. But first, Tom Colicchio is a celebrity chef, you might say a top chef, but he is primarily a restaurant owner and businessman. He started the Independent Restaurant Coalition in reaction to the government's assistance program, which Colicchio says will be wholly insufficient for the needs of his industry. It's a vital industry and one in line to get hit hardest by the coronavirus shutdown. What to do? Well, I can talk to Tom and you can listen. That's up next. In 1990, manufacturing, the sector of manufacturing was almost three times larger than the food service industry, but now they're almost neck and neck. The food service industry, other than people who work in factories, the number one private employer. And yet, if you look at the bailout plans, it is being treated as, I don't know, just an add-on. The airline industry, they get their own targeted bailout, restaurant workers, which again, employ something. Like 12 million people, you know. Let's hope that they could fight for the table scraps. Tom Colicchio, who is a restaurateur and one of the hosts of Top Chef, has been talking about this issue what to do with the many restaurants the many restaurant workers who are out of a job now and he hopes won't be out of a job if ever the economy comes around thanks for joining me tom
3: thanks thanks for having me
1: you own a number of restaurants paint a picture of what it would look like were you to return under the circumstances that they're talking about
3: no no but but let's let's set the table first um, as one does yes. yeah yeah so restaurants um At best, right now, especially in New York with rents the way they are, at best, maybe you're seeing a 10% profitability. Maybe. Now, in in my restaurants, I had five restaurants across the country. So four in New York and then a restaurant in Los Angeles. All in, I laid off about 470 people. Opening where I lose half my seats and maybe I'm doing 30% of the business I'm doing now, that's just not a tenable business at that point. Without help... Restaurants will not make it through here because there's not a restaurant in this country that can get by doing 30, 40% of the business they were doing before uh, COVID. Very quickly after we got shut down, I got a phone call from a friend and led to another phone call, which led to the formation of the Independent Restaurant Coalition, which led to hiring lobbyists because of some of the work that I've done on the Hill. I realized that government was going to respond to this and we needed a seat at the table. And so we got representation, hired a comms team, and off to the races. Before we can really start putting a a marker down as to what we wanted, government was pretty quickly, uh, out of the gate, put together PPP. And we tried to get some fixes in there. We made a little headway. But, you know, essentially right now, if I'm a restaurant, if I get 100% of my employees back, I can use a portion of that money that'll be forgiven and it'll turn into a grant. The problem is I'm not open. I have no idea when I'm going to be open. I have eight weeks of payroll protection. So if I hire my staff back now, if they decide to come back... Eight weeks from now, I'm out of money and I'm not open. So what does it do? It takes my employees off of unemployment for two months. They're going to have to go right back on unemployment because I run out of money and I'm not open. PPP actually works if you're a business that is open right now. Maybe you're depressed by 50% because of COVID. Maybe you've laid off a few employees. Now you hire them back. Your payroll is taken care of, but you still have revenue. We have zero revenue right now. So we're forced to close. And so if we change that date of origin to when we open the restaurant, then we have we may have something there. That'll give us, you know, again, two months of, of payroll while we're opening. And and we have some revenue coming through.
1: But it also seems they're forcing a condition upon you where you have to retain 100% of your staff and you'd like to, but the rules, the health rules are going to be actually you're only serving 50% of diners. It almost seems as if it were scientifically designed in a lab to work to the opposite of the restaurant industry's needs.
3: Well... The purpose of PPP was not to actually help restaurants open. It was to actually just fund payroll so a lot of people weren't on unemployment. And so this was a way to take the burden off the state unemployment agencies, fund money through people's payroll, um, and pay people. It all makes perfect sense. The problem I have right now is because I'm not open, the money will run out before I'm opened up. That puts opening in jeopardy. And what we don't want to do is have restaurants start to open up they run out of PPP funding and they close again, and all those people are back in unemployment without a job to, to ever come back to. Because the other problem we have is that when I have my staff, you know, calling up and you know, I call up and say, "Okay, the, you know, I want to hire you back." They're like, "Well, you're only going to hire me for for two months, and then I'm back in unemployment. I'll stay where I am." And so, so I don't want to force a worker back, but unless I get workers back, all that money that I got for PPP just becomes a loan. I I don't need debt on my books right now, (laughs) so so it's not working. So what we're asking for after PPP, and if they fix PPP, is what we're calling a restaurant stabilization package. The question isn't necessarily, when do I think I can open up? My question is, when does the general public feel safe going out to restaurants again, going out to crowded places again? Even if I do some distancing in the restaurant, think about this. Every surface that someone touches— they come into a restaurant, they open the front door. They're putting their hands on that. Do I have to go right behind them with, with disinfectant and disinfect that for every single person who walks in and walks out? Does that mean waiters are wearing masks? Right? How, do you, how, how do you drink a cocktail when you're wearing a mask? You know, if someone coughs in a restaurant, does that mean you have to clear out the restaurant? Do I have to take temperatures of people coming in? Are we going to get a card if you have antibodies? You already had this. Are you going to get a card that says that you, 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 you have antibodies and that you, you, you're right. not carrying? I mean, it, it, it's way too complicated. So it's just the idea of take out half your seats, that's not enough.
1: Well, beyond that, you are in the hospitality industry, and wearing a mask and going through these protocols, it seems uh, perhaps necessary, but inhospitable. And I would also say, you know, going to a restaurant, a restaurant like yours, is not a mere mechanism to ingest calories. It's supposed to be. An evening out, it's supposed to have a vibe. It's supposed to be relaxing. And nothing of what you're describing is any of that.
3: No, it it really isn't. And so the point I was making is that we are not going to be anywhere near at capacity until we get, number one, a lot of testing, antibody testing, and then ultimately we need a vaccine. We're talking a year from now.
1: Do you think the reason that the PPP was so poorly designed was that— people, restaurants, businesses like yourself just weren't thought of or considered the in kind of the indie rock band of restaurants. I mean, on the President's Council, there's, you know, Arby's and Chick-fil-A, and I'm not looking down at Arby's. I love a horsey sauce as much as everyone. And there were some people who ran white tablecloth restaurants, mm-hmm. Jean George and Thomas Keller, who you might know and be friends with. But it did lack that mid-level restaurant that reflected the tastes of a chef or a city. That just seemed not to have even been considered in the composition of the relief package.
3: Right. Right. Um, You know, that again, let's not confuse the the relief package with this 200 board of business owners or leaders that Trump put together to figure out how to how to open business for the country. They're two separate things. But my
1: point is one is congressional and one is uh, presidential, but it seems to perhaps reflect who has the ear of those in power.
3: Right, right. Again, I I think, uh, listen, you're right. Thomas, John George, Danielle, they, they are friends of mine. They're fine chefs. What it doesn't reflect is the diversity of our restaurants. It doesn't take into consideration mom and pops. It doesn't take into consideration people of color, women restaurant owners, women chefs. I think the reason PPP doesn't actually work, number one, I don't believe when Marco Rubio, was his bill, when he was putting this together, that he actually envisioned that this would take, uh, you know, I thought maybe they were thinking two months and this will be over at the time. And again, I think the other issue was they were looking at this as a way to reduce unemployment because that was the mm-hmm. one thing that, that the president was able to tout as like a big accomplishment of his, keeping unemployment low. So now they're looking at, you know, millions of people that were going to be unemployment. And they're like, how do we move people off of unemployment and back employed again? So I think those two things converged together. And I don't think there was enough thought put into how the mechanics of this work. And listen, we were in there when they were crafting this. You know, we were talking to staffers. I mean, I can't tell you how many members of Congress I've spoken to in the last you know, month, month and a half. They're hearing us. They're, they're listening to us. But you know, now you have the fact that Marco Rubio, it's his bill. If you're a senator and you get a bill passed, a major piece of legislation passed, that's a feather in your cap, especially when mm-hmm. you believe— that this piece of legislation is going to save small businesses across the country. You better believe that in, that in four years from now, Marco Rubio will run for president, and he will use this as his major major accomplishment, that he saved small businesses. So therefore, he is very reluctant to do anything to change it. So there's politics involved here too, and electoral politics involved. And so you, know, you have to sort of get through to him saying, it's, you know, it's six months from now, that's not the story that's going to be told. So you should rethink right. this. That's not, right. it's not the story. Now, again, keep in mind that this PPP was put together for all small businesses. It didn't have a restaurant carve out, but what they should have taken into consideration was businesses that were forced to close.
1: But Marco Rubio's situation, that is not necessarily a flaw. That could be a virtue. If he's open to wanting to take credit, and this is how politics should work, a politician a crafts legislation, he or she rightly gets credit for it. He touts it as part of his resume. You can leverage that to convince him to make it better or fix it.
3: That's exactly what we're trying to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also talking to uh, Nidia Velasquez, who runs the House Small Business uh, Committee, working with her, and, you know... They they hear it loud and clear. I mean, just last night, you know, Mark Warner posted this, the uh, senator from Virginia posted this tuna melt that he put together that was pretty bad. And so my comment was, <laughs> okay, I'll say it, pack your knives. And he got back to me and said, you know, he was actually on a... a, a episode of Top Chef when we shot in D.C., a bunch of politicians were, and uh, he said, well, that, that's why you didn't let me anywhere near the kitchen when, we filmed, uh, when you filmed in D.C., and uh, he said, that's why we need to go out and support our local restaurants, and my response was, while you're at it, uh, let's talk about it. Local restaurants yeah. not, are, not be, are not being helped by PPP. Um, he DM'd me, and so we're getting together tomorrow to discuss PPP, um, and I may give him some tips on a, on a tuna melt while I'm at it, but um, yeah. <laughs> yes, but, but my, my point is like, they're, they're listening to us. But now it's just a, a, the struggle to try to, you know, change legislation or craft new legislation, depending on the day, some days, some days, I feel better than others. Um, you know, what we're hoping for at this point, because it seems like the only thing that's going to change PPP is the Secretary of the Treasury, Mnuchin, to actually um, give us some, uh, some, some guidance on PPP. Um, because the Treasury Department can still give statutory guidance on that bill. And so that's what we're hoping, that that Mnuchin will look at this and just, you know, using some common sense saying, yeah, this doesn't work for a lot of businesses, so let's fix it.
1: So Jeff Gordonier, a great writer for Esquire, he wrote all about the the landscape of the kind of restaurants you run, the kind of restaurants that maybe he surmises Trump and the Trump family patronizes. And he writes, the revolution, meaning these great independent restaurants that reflect artistry and uh, cuisines and history, that revolution is officially over. It came to a stark and nauseating halt on Friday the 13th in March 2020, a virus put countless independent restaurants into a coma, it's agonizing to think that thousands of these restaurants, many of them on the brink of fostering new transformations in new places, might finally be killed off by the culture wars. Do you co-sign to that?
3: Well, I don't know if it's shut off because of the culture wars, but I, I agree with him that it's a nail in the coffin of young chefs who are willing to take a risk and put a stake in the ground and do something different. Um, help to try to change the industry by sort of the, the way they function, who they're hiring, how they're hiring, and doing something interesting and cool. Someone like me who's established, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll admit, I'm, I'm a little less risk-averse as the older I get. When you're, you know, a young upstart and someone gives you some funding, boy, you're, you're doing a lot of creative stuff. Now, the other thing, the other trend, and he touches on this too, where young cooks, they come into New York, are Chicago, maybe Los Angeles, San Francisco. They go to the big cities to learn, and then they're going back <laughs> into smaller cities. And they're bringing right. all these great concepts to the secondary cities and the tertiary cities. And now you can get great food anywhere in this country.
1: I was just going to say, I was just going to cite this statistic that I think it's 45% of new retail openings in Cleveland, Ohio were restaurants. There it's like go. the number one restaurant town, and restaurants are driving that economy, especially since LeBron James left.
3: Right, and, but but that's wh- that's where, and, and again, you're touching on something really important. This is why we believe that restaurants need a special fund to make sure that that we can open that make sure that we can sustain ourselves because we're uniquely positioned because we employ eleven plus million people and not only that when you think about the smaller independent restaurants they're the ones who are buying directly from farmers and fishermen who are shopping in the green markets who are keeping winemakers in business and cheesemakers in business so indirectly We support probably 20 million people. And so what happens if that's gone? So the other argument I make is, what happens to real estate? What's gonna happen to all these retail spaces that are gone? What does that do to the communities? Yeah, retail, by the way,
1: restaurants and gyms are the only growth factors in real estate.
3: Yeah, right.
1: If you were asked, like Keller, and Wolfgang Puck and John George, at least a few of whom I happen to know aren't huge fans of the president. But if you were asked to serve on a presidential council, would you do it like Mattis and Fauci did? Or could you not bring yourself to do that?
3: It's a a really good question. And I don't fault Thomas or Danielle or John George for saying yes. They're looking at an opportunity to help the restaurant industry. So they're going to say yes, that's fine. And I don't know if it's necessarily incumbent upon them to say, hey, wait a minute, you're not including this one, this one, this one. Would I say yes? I, I don't know. And if I did, I can tell you I, would, I wouldn't tweet out that it's an honor for me to be on, you know, this council. Uh, I would say with a lot of skepticism and cynicism, I decided to say yes, and hopefully I can make a difference. But I certainly wouldn't stand up there and go, you know, dear president, you've been so great for us. Oh, my God, I can't believe you're doing this. Okay, let's try to do something. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I couldn't bring myself to do that. If I can help out, great, but I'm certainly not going to sit there and carry his water.
1: Well, this is actually something I've always wanted to ask you. I follow you on Twitter, and you are you are as scathing, gimlet-eyed, insightful, however you want to say it, as, say, a really good MSNBC analyst. If I put your tweets up next to, I don't know, Chris Hayes's, maybe his would have a little more stats, but they'd be similar. And I always wondered about that, because, you know, you have to serve all the public. There is, I think, it's not about being hashtag resistance or not, but there is an argument to make that, as part of the hospitality business, are you being max hospitable by putting those opinions out there. So my question was, was it a choice that you had to make? And uh, how has the choice gone in terms of business and the bottom line to be so outspoken politically?
3: Well, you know, I've been outspoken politically for a while. I co-founded an organization called Food Policy Action based in Washington, D.C. We actually created the scorecard. We graded Congress on how they voted on various food issues, issues like hunger, fisheries, uh, farming, transportation transparency in the food system. Very quickly, we figured out that people weren't hungry in this country because we didn't have enough food to feed people. It wasn't because of famine. It wasn't because of war. It was because we didn't have the political will to feed people. And because of my platform, because of Top Chef, that gave me a barrel to stand on and, and, and talk about this issue. And that led me right to Washington. And so I've been political for a while. The calculus would be like, you know, you don't want to alienate 50 percent of you know, the people out there. It's not the way I look at it. I look at it as, as I'm, a, a, I'm an American. I vote. In this country, we have the First Amendment. And if I see a president that is doing the things that he did, I just think that's only within my right as, as a citizen to do that. It overrides the sense of business. But, you know, you mentioned MSNBC. I was a correspondent on MSNBC for two years. I do tend to look at things through a liberal lens. I think the big difference between myself and Chris Hayes is I'm sure his is punctuated better than mine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Tom Colicchio is the founder of Crafted Hospitality. He's a chef. He owns restaurants like Kraft. The judge of Top Chef and his new initiative is the Independent Restaurant Coalition. Thanks for your time, Tom. Thank you. And now the spiel. The writer and two-time defending GIST champion and guest, and let's say friend, Megan Daum, wrote an essay about getting out of New York City during the coronavirus, and she brought her puppy along. Because puppies are comforting, and leaving New York is a rational decision. To read one online commentator... This is an exceptionally bad take. Rural hospitals and ecologies are not your cheap escape plan. Of all the exploitative, tone-deaf Karen moves in Appalachia's long history of being carried by Karens, your puppy retreat in a pandemic is peak Karen. No, silly, it's Megan. It's Megan down. Jesus, it's kind of <laughs> embarrassing. Masha Gessen wrote about leaving New York City during the pandemic because leaving New York is rational and she seems to have taken precautions. She writes, We rented a car, we rented a house, we drove, stopping only once, to refuel using disinfected gloves. The town has a hospital with more than 100 beds for a year-round population of just over 30,000, and it's only about an hour's drive from the Boston Medical Area cluster of hospitals unlike any other in the country. For this, she was criticized by Claire Fallon in the Huffington Post in an essay titled Please Stop Writing Why I Left New York Pandemic Essays. Were the critique, were Fallon's critique based on literary merits, it would be hard to argue just in a de non est disputatum sort of way. Sorry, a de Karen non est disputatum Karen sort of way. So much of the critique was of the ethics of actually fleeing a place of contagion for a place of non or less contagion. Fallon writes, and she writes well, it's a wonderful essay. She writes, Told that leaving the city for their in-law's place in Ohio, or a cabin in New Hampshire threatens to spread infections to other communities, many with small hospitals and limited ICU beds, writers who flee have a heavy burden to lift, explaining why their own flight was morally unimpeachable. Well, then I would think that Gessen, placing yourself not in one of those rural areas, but a place selected for its access to large medical centers, should escape that critique. Nope. Fallon calls Gessen's essay self-righteous. So if you flee, you should take the medical capacity of the community in mind, but if you note that in your essay, you're self-righteous. I think fleeing, the act of fleeing, is 80% of the reason that people get country houses to flee to maybe not fleeing a pandemic or fleeing an outbreak, maybe just fleeing heat or fleeing the workday grind or fleeing the fleas and the rats. Isn't that the cause of plague to begin with? But I have considered the arguments on both sides, to stay, to flee, to stave off fleeing, or to stay a fleeing. If you chronicle your fleeing, might you stay a Know what I'm saying? So I present why I have not fled to my country house. Everyone has the right to make the decision that's right for them. But for me and my family and my neighbors and my loved ones and my liked ones and my acquainted with ones, I've decided to stay in the area with a lot of deadly virus rather than leave for an area with none or less deadly virus. I'm doing so in the hopes that I will not spread the virus to an area that is not overwhelmed, but to keep the virus within an area that clearly is overwhelmed because I hear that is the right and proper thing to do. While I understand that I could leave the area of much virus, have minimal contact along the way in relocating to another unvirused area, And I have also read a lot of studies that indicate that fleeting interactions at distances, in masks, and in open spaces are very, very, very unlikely ways to catch the virus. I know not everyone will understand that. I also know that if I quarantine upon arrival for 10 to 14 days, show no symptoms, have no symptoms, it is almost a perfect guarantee that I don't have the virus or can't give it to anyone else. But I know not everyone knows that, and some people who don't know that have access to Twitter. And some of those people can then brand me with popular names from the 50s through 70s. And isn't that a pandemic unto itself? I also know that while leaving a crowded municipal area with a lot of outbreak lessens the chance for the virus to further spread within that area and lessens the chance of my passing it along to others within that area. Again, not everyone knows that. And since so much is unknown about the virus, let's just say nothing is known. I'm probably a carrier, even if there's no evidence that I'm a carrier and no evidence that behaving in this way is in any way dangerous. Though does my summer house beckon, and I do long for the way the light off the pond reflects onto the rafters that is filtered through the old windows until it bounces back off the pond on the other side. And I sometimes wonder, am I on an island? Is there a lot of flooding going on? Should I check that? And such worry can tax the body's immune system, or so I'm told, but I don't believe it. But others believe it, and that's the important thing. I think of the great works of literature written during pandemics. Boccaccio's Decameron was written about people who fled Florence for the country during the plague, which Boccaccio himself did. But Boccaccio had no Huffington Post to worry about, and I cannot write Italian, so there is no use in thinking I could achieve a work as great as the Decameron. If anything, I could simply binge the collected works of Kirk Cameron And I could do that from Brooklyn. I will not be fleeing to my country house, even though most anyone who could do so has, and everyone who can't tells themselves they wouldn't. But it's my commitment not to be a spreader, a spreader of bad takes. I have often said and truly believe and have the arm tattoo to prove it that I would hate for anyone to think I cared about being judged. By the same token, I want you to know I didn't get that tattoo in Georgia, or if I did, the inking began well before today. No, I will not be fleeing to my summer house because I love you, the other residents of my borough, the borough with the virus all around it. But mostly, I will not be fleeing to my summer house because, as you may have guessed, I don't own one. And that really is the most honorable decision of all. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is the Just associate producer. Her four-pack-a-day of camel mediums did a tremendous number on the lungs. Daniel Schrader, Just producer, was being sarcastic when he called back the restaurant and said, I'd like to change my wonton soup order to egg drop. Total sarcasm! Did these guys not get sarcasm? Like when he said, you know, I've been staying inside so much, I've been thinking about painting the walls just to change things a little. Totally sarcastic! How would anyone actually think that such a thing were being said seriously. The gist. Donald Trump wasn't saying ingest disinfectant. He was saying consume disinfectant ingest. Oomperoo depuroo peru. and thanks for listening.